Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to Silas Monroe. Silas is a designer, educator, and writer currently based in Los Angeles, where he's on the faculty at Otis College of Art and Design in their MFA program. Silas and I met a few years ago when he led a workshop at MICA, where I was a graduate student at the time, and I was struck by a phrase that he used in the lecture that he gave there. He called himself a design nomad, and I distinctly remember scribbling that term down in my notebook and just being really fascinated by the possibilities and the meaning behind that. And we use that to kind of kick off this conversation, explore what it means to be a design nomad and how how this term or this idea connects to ideas around expanded practices and cross-disciplinary work and moving between modes of working and identities and aesthetics. We also talk about teaching and his teaching practice and how that relates to his design work. We talk about decolonizing graphic design history and Silas's current research around the visualization work of W.E.B. Du Bois. This was a a really fun one. Silas is just so thoughtful, and I found this conversation really inspiring and encouraging. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month and $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. The next uh, issue of that is going out this week. Memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just really appreciate all of your support, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Silas Monroe. I I was first introduced to you when you came to MICA when I was a a graduate student there. um, I guess that was 2015 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the first, you, you were someone whose name I knew I had kind of seen your work, but I didn't, I hadn't put it all together until I saw your presentation. And you said something in that presentation that I kind of want to start with. It might be kind of a weird way to start, but you referred to your practice or you referred to your work in that lecture as, um, you, you called yourself a design nomad, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I that phrase has stuck with me ever since. And so I thought, you know what? Let's just start with that. Um, wh- what what is the design nomad, or what does that mean to you? Mm. Uh, I think part of it is like was practical, especially at the time, like um, twenty fifteen. So uh, at that point, I had been teaching at. BCFA for a few years we uh, a few of us started a new graduate program in graphic design that is a low residency format so that was started in 2011 and so in 2015 I was between uh, a new academic position at the university at Miami University of Ohio oh right um you know, I was doing that workshop yeah. in Micah in Baltimore. I was teaching in Vermont, you know, twice right. a year, you know, a week at a time. And then my fiance, my partner was still living in Miami at the oh. time, <laughs> okay. Florida. So I had to, the two Miami things going on, Miami of Ohio, <laughs> Miami, Florida. And so I just felt like I was physically actually distributed a lot of different places oh, at the time. Um, but also I feel like in terms of what my practice is, is very migratory. I'm really interested in a lot of different ways of practicing. I do client-based work. I love to write about design. Uh, I teach about design. And so I have this very like curious wandering, uh, approach. So I think that's to me, it just made sense for how to try to describe all these different things that I was doing in places that I was going. Uh, And what I like about it is that it's nomad both geographically, as in moving around physically, but also within your own practice, uh, and that your practice moves around between all of these different disciplines, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to, to talk to you is because I felt like your work does span from teaching to writing to traditional kind of client graphic design. Uh, so I get, I'm kind of curious how that started or how, 
how that how you kind of built that kind of practice. So let's, you know, maybe to to make it easier, let's kind of go all the way back to where your interest. Did you study design in in school, or how did you kind of get into this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I studied graphic design at RISD. Um, so there's that. I mean, both my degrees are in graphic design. I also have an MFA in right. graphic design from CalArts. But um, I remember even like in high school, really um, not sure kind of what I really wanted to study. I, I, like, I kind of love all different kinds of learning and learning experiences. So yeah. a, lot of, a lot of that was influenced by the kind of teachers I had at high school. Like I remember being really into like um, my like bio class. There was an amazing oh, wow. like uh, like gifted and talented biology teacher freshman year. And like, I thought I was going to be a scientist. Like my mom was a microbiologist for oh, many years and like consultant for the department of energy. And then, oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> and then it's, and then my dad is like, he worked for NPR for years oh, okay. as an editor and producer, uh, for morning edition. So for me, like, uh, I've also always been interested in like politics, contemporary things. He studied history. I've been interested in history. Um, but I had this art teacher who, uh, her name was Mrs. Monroe, spelled differently. Okay. Um, M-O-N-R-O-E. But like she is the one that kind of really like, I was like, oh, like through visual making and right. a kind of poetic resonance, you can kind of address everything yeah that's the way that you could that i could engage with the world that made sense to me and um that was also the same time that i was like really messing with the computer and like finding a lot of freedom there with like uh internet bbs's and like (laughs) right um you know like early web stuff and just like i love the malleability and the fluency of the digital space and so, so, so when you were at RISD, were all of those kind of other influences in your work right away? You know, were you thinking about science and politics and NPR and all of these other yeah. things you were interested in? Did those all come together kind of in graphic design right away for you? Or how did you start to well, see these things coming together? Yeah, I mean, I was really torn with a major. Like, yeah. I had, was seriously considering graphic design, um, FAV at RISD, like film, animation, videos, oh, yeah. all one major, and painting were like the three oh, okay. majors that really felt like, I was like, oh, I want to do all of these. Right. Um, but I took a winter session course. There's a, at RISD, you have the six week period oh, between yeah. the fall and the spring. And there was a class that Brian Lucid taught. I know that you name. Know he teaches at Mass Art, and okay. he's actually a pretty well-known scholar on interaction design. And oh, okay. Um, uh, he's a great graphic designer as well, and just a great educator, thoughtful person. And um, he taught this class called Visual Poetry, and it was actually meant to be like a a pair of courses like this six credit studio and then like a liberal arts that was like supposed to be with a poetry teacher. Okay. The poetry teacher got sick um, and wasn't there. So it was just him. And it was like this experimental typography. Oh, interesting. Class. And it just like, it made sense to me. Like it felt like um, Mrs. Monroe, the art teacher at one point when I was like grappling with like, what do I want to major? Or where do I want to go? She said, it looked like I was um, sitting with like, one half of my brain in one hand, the other half of my brain yeah, in the yeah. other, you know, like split lobes and something about that class with Brian, it just kind of fused. It felt oh, like everything was yeah. together. So, and so, so from that you were like, okay, graphic design is, yeah. is the thing. Yeah. So, cause he was on the graphic design faculty and, yeah. uh, I ended up going into that major and it was, that was an amazing experience. And so, uh, at Riz- when when you were there, how I have two. I guess I have kind of two questions about that. Um, how much did you know about what graphic design was? You know, kind of when you're in that workshop, and then when you started at RISD, did you know 
what a graphic designer did did that kind of did the field make sense to you about these are the types of things you can do when you graduate and then the second part of the question is when you were there were you thinking about your career and kind of what you wanted to do after Mm. what what were those kind of goals at the time um my experience with what a graphic designer was was uh, already informed by my own self-education at Borders Bookstore, okay. um, yes. you know, yes. that I would go to yeah. uh, in high school before going to RISD. And one of the things that was interesting about my dad working at NPR was that there would be like a bunch of like review copies of books oh, and right. I would totally um, go and exchange them <laughs> for uh, other books that yeah. I would want. So yeah. it was totally not like kosher but um um (laughs) so be like a a kind of like book alchemy and so for me it felt like oh books were this kind of currency and uh, i could exchange sort of one idea and one design and one sort of massive printing for something else and i was like really enamored with both the art books and the design books and you know that's where i got um you know my first introduction to david carson right um, the end of print and actually also Karl Martin's. Oh, interesting. His monograph. Uh, this was like, you know, between 97 and 99. And I was also like yeah. getting other like books on software and technology and, um, you know, visual artists. Uh, I remember going, I grew up in Virginia, so I would take the train to the National Gallery of oh, Arts. Nice. And I was like all into the, uh, abstract expressionists and uh, especially like Jasper Johns and yeah. Robert Rauschen, these yeah. artists that were like using images and text to make work. So yeah. in the sense that I was, would end up in graphic design. So that was kind of what I knew going into the graphic design program at RISD. And, uh, but then I just got such a totally different, um, deeper education there and actually Matt Monk, who's one of oh, the yeah. founding faculty at VCFA, he was the first chair. Um, he's now the dean um, at okay. VCFA. Yeah. He was my first typography teacher. Okay. So I was yeah I met him when I was nineteen. So which is pretty interesting trajectory yeah. for our friendship and relationship. Yeah, I mean it's funny. I don't mean to to draw too many parallels between your your background and my background, but, but there are actually kind of some interesting, uh, similarities at a very base level. Uh, Robert Rauschenberg was my favorite artist all -hmm. through high school. Um, I remember, uh, uh, I grew up outside Philadelphia, uh, and going to the Philadelphia art museum and there was a, a show of his and I just never seen anything like that before. And a lot of my early design work was very, uh, Rauschenberg as kind of collage, kind of text image, that sort of thing. Um, but then also I s- would spend my time at, at the Barnes and Noble in our area and look mm-hmm. at all the graphic design books. And so I went into undergrads also studying graphic design, thinking that I kind of knew it all already, but, <laughs> but realized that I, I, I knew a lot of design history. I knew who all these people were, but I had never heard of kerning before or like mm-hmm. any of the practical part of it. I mm-hmm. I never picked up those books. Uh, so I knew kind of the culture, but without any of the actual uh, actual skills. And so then when I got to school, it's like, oh, there's this whole other side that, that I don't know anything about yet. Yeah, I totally could relate to that. There was like another one of my influential teachers at RISD was Nancy Skolos. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I remember being in like a sophomore class in that first semester. And I just felt like a lot of this is really foundational, you know, like it felt very basic to me. And so like, I remember coming to her and I was like, I think I'm transferring to California. You're like, I want to go to a different school. Some of the things that I was looking at, especially I was like, oh, art center would be cool. I really want to go there. Yeah. And she was like, uh, I don't think you want to do that. <laughs> she was like, it's really slick and like, you'll have a great portfolio, but like, you're going to miss these, right. you know, core, uh, intrinsic aspects of design and you want to stay and explore. And it, it wasn't until like years later that I realized like, oh, she had this really interesting, 
uh, intersection of two lineages right. of design education. She had um, her, like her and Lorraine, were one of the few people who did a undergraduate experience at Cranbrook, and then both did MFAs at Yale. And it was just kind of this interesting, like, oh, it's like this modern and postmodern lineages, East Coast, West Coast, kind of coming yeah, together. Yeah. Um, so, like, lately, that's one thing that I've been really interested in is like. Uh, the lineages of design pedagogy, especially yeah. like the maternal lines, like the matrilinity yeah. yep. of of these amazing educators and critics and designers that um, you know have really shaped the field of design education in the United States today. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so funny that that you even bring this up because I was just having this conversation with somebody the other day about would it be possible to trace uh, kind of visual styles or ways of thinking about design through uh, MFA programs um, mm. and through the kind of the teachers there? And again, thinking about Lorraine, thinking about uh, Kathy McCoy, Sheila, mm -hmm. you know, all of these women who have kind of led these programs um, talk, can you talk more? I mean, I guess let's just kind of turn into that a little bit. What are you, what's your thinking around that? Or, or what is that research that you've been doing? Um, it's been a mixture of like purport, uh, proposals for classes, oh, okay. um, like in various interview processes, like mm -hmm. when I ended up interviewing at Otis and, um, there was another California school that I interviewed at as well. And sort of thinking about a different take on design history, yeah, and especially like uh, a non-patriarchal yeah. yeah way of looking at design history. Um, there's actually this like amazing essay uh, in this um, book. It's called uh, "A Queer Feminist Perspective on Design History." Oh, I don't know this. Um, it's from this collection called "The Impossible Object." Oh, sorry, the responsible object. <laughs> it's like this amazing uh, history. Um, yeah, the responsible object, history of design ideology for the future. And Oh, I, I have seen this. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mara Jane von Helvert is the editor. There's this one, yeah, there's this one essay in there about this queer feminist perspective of design history and it was just something i was thinking about before yeah um was just like how do you like like wow there's been these amazing visionary women that have shaped my understanding of design and the places i've been a student at and that i've taught yeah. at and i was really interested in sort of like seeing how that all was connected and basically what i've been like discovering is also that even though there's these different programs and different philosophies, I feel like they're all super interconnected Yeah. in a way that it's like, it's not like East coast, West coast, postmodern, modern. It's much more fused. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it seems more different. Yeah. Well, what's your own, what is your own experience with that studying undergrad at RISD and then getting your MFA at Cal arts, which I think, you know, maybe under a, a superficial kind of, uh, look at those could be seen as East Coast, West Coast, modernism, postmodernism. Um, so I get, let me ask this in a couple different ways. Did you, what did you do between undergrad and Cal Arts? And then how did you decide that you wanted to go back to school and why mm. Cal Arts? Yeah, I spent three years between okay. um, undergrad and grad. And the first year was also kind of a grad school. Um, I did a fellowship at the Walker Art Center. Oh, yeah. Um, for oh, a wow. year, which was amazing and also a profound learning experience. Um, and so at the time, Andrew Blavat was the design director. Oh, nice. There. And so his background is from Cranbrook. Yeah. Um, but also teaching at NC State and so before coming to the Walker so that was also kind of my first taste of like a maybe more open-ended way of looking at design. Okay. His way of leading and 
and being a design director was very hands off and very cerebral and mm. super interesting to me. I really admired the fact that he was both a designer and a curator. Yeah. That was sort of the, my first experience with someone who was making design work, but also framing the conversation oh, at right. that high level way around design. And that to me was super interesting. And it had that kind of, the Walker had that kind of multifaceted aspect. It was visual arts and performing arts and yeah. family programs and, um, you know, performing arts. Right. And it was oh, just this rich mix of different disciplines. And that felt very nomadic, very polymodal. Yeah. Yeah, to me, even though I did, I wouldn't have called it those things at the time. And then, so then, how? So then, how? So you were kind of exposed to that, and then, kind of like this is the kind of work I want to do. This is the way I'm. I want to think about my work, and and grad school seemed like a a way to do that. Or or how how did you end up at Cal Arts? Well, actually, during the time that I was at the Walker, John Sueda okay. came to visit. The Walker, and he was friends with Emmett Byrne, yeah. who was the other fellow there, who's now the design director. And like B Emmett was a huge influence on me. Um, Chad Klepfer, oh yeah, uh, another designer uh, that was there, was you know uh, a major uh, uh, impact there. Um, we just had like a really strong like set of influences, but when John came, I remember him working on this book about bugs. Okay. He was working on it, um, about insects. I don't know. This. That he was designing. Um, and at the time he was partners with, uh, Gail Swanlin, oh, yeah. um, and Stripe. And they were just like talking about this really weird, strange looking book that was <laughs> filled with these like vector graphic illustrations of insects and it was just like wow that like you can yeah. have a practice where you're like doing that yeah <laughs> and um oh also one other person that was in the studio at the time alex de armand is also oh, yeah a really big influence on me too and i don't know it was just like it felt like a family yeah um of design it was the designers and also the editors that we worked really closely with and other curators um, but, but John, I think the way that he was talking about his work had a very, um, personally charged and insightful perspective on design. And I think that was something that was quite different than the RISD experience that I had. Like it was very, uh, you know, to use a CalArts buzzword, idiosyncratic, <laughs> yeah. it, was very, it was, it was very specific to him. And it was just, there was something very engaging about, um, this deep sense that I had when listening to him talk about design that he knew himself very well. Mm. And that was part of what informed his design. And so that subjectivity, that radical subjectivity was something that, uh, felt super foreign and very attractive to me. And so, and I mean, I, I want something I wanted to talk about was, was poly mode, both your studio and, but that started as, as your CalArts thesis project, right? Correct. And that sounds like it's very much related to what you're talking about is this kind of subjectivity. And I mean, it, from what I know of, of that project, it sounds like it kind of encompasses a lot of what we, we were talking about of kind of identity, subjectivity, this kind of expanded practice or, or uh, nomadism, if, if, if you want. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about where those ideas came from? Did you go to school thinking these are the things I, I want to kind of work on while I'm here or how'd that come about? Um, interesting. Well, it's like, no, I didn't, okay. <laughs> I did not have preconceived notions about what I would be doing there, but I did know that I liked teaching. Okay. I did know that I liked researching and in between the Walker and CalArts, I spent a year in Chicago working at, VSA partners oh, doing yeah. super corporate yeah. work, yeah. especially for IBM and doing their annual report and having that experience. Um, and then another year freelancing as an art director in DC. Okay. And I think part of that uh, nomadism is also just like 
as a young person, and I'm still pretty young, but like in my 20s, like I was very impatient. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like kind of always like trying to find a new place or new experience that would kind of satisfy my curiosity about design or like be the right fit. And I always kind of felt like I couldn't grasp that. Yeah. Um, so I think I had a pretty uh, precocious and accelerated trajectory to graduate school with a little bit more life experience. I think I was pretty naive and um, I think also rather like um, misdirected and unsure of myself. And it, I think it made sense that I ended up doing a thesis that was like using fiction right. and using these uh, personas to make work because like, I feel like I really didn't know myself. So the polymode thesis was both a way to kind of learn about yourself, but then also learn about your relationship to design or what, what you were interested in design, would you say? I think so. And it was also a way to contain the fact that I was interested in everything. And like you said about yourself, I was a total know-it-all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I read voraciously and, uh, you know, uh, I'm nosy, you know, so I'm also like really curious about other people's practices and, yeah. you know, have like this kind of freaky, weird Rolodex of other designers in my head all the time, which is great for being informative. But as a practitioner, it actually can be really destabilizing right. where you kind of like have so many other reference points. Uh, your own yeah. perspective yeah. is distorted, you know? Yeah. So how how did that? This is so interesting to me for a couple of reasons. And I'm curious how working on that project, well, I guess, you know, before we get into that, maybe it would be helpful for people listening who don't know what the project is if you described it a bit. Um, because mm -hmm. what I'm curious about is how working on that kind of led to what you've been doing since you graduated and the mm -hmm. career that you've built for yourself. But let's let's kind of actually just talk about what that is first before we kind of get into the influence of it. Mm hmm. Um, just one sort of like precursor to the project. Uh, one of the one of my colleagues at Otis right now, Tanya Rubik, and um, she was a year ahead of me oh, okay. at CalArts. She and I were both like uh, when she was working on her thesis and I was in my first year, we were both really interested in this notion of fiction mm -hmm. and sort of um the hyper real and she was working on a project where she created this fictional persona as well for oh, her pieces and i like was really interested in that modality it was just this kind of organic thing where we were both really interested in the same kinds of things at the same time and kind of both were like catching on to it yeah yeah, yeah. um i think some of it was also i remember being at the walker and um, there was a copy of Dun and Raby's Design Noir. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and and kind of thinking about speculative design and sort of that that you could actually like imagine new futures. Yeah, yeah. Through the power of design, and that was something I really wanted for myself as well as like what would be the new future of my practice if I could do whatever I want if and I if I had total say. I remember there was this class on pataphysics. Um, at, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was a critical studies course. Pataphysics is like the absurd science. It's sort of like oh. science about the science of uh, exceptions. Okay. So um, uh, Alfred Jarry was this French like philosopher who okay. invented this modality, and it's like basically an absurd science okay. it's a kind of philosophy that is all about um exceptions and and strange alignments and uh, mm -hmm. kind of weird stuff and and ended up not taking the course okay. I, tanya and i were passing it back and forth that's like such a typical calards thing like you sign up for a class but then you don't take it because you're too busy doing your studio work <laughs> right <laughs> you always like add dropping things yeah um but that the idea of like uh, using fiction and this idea of like uh, folding a 
discipline that's meant to be rational into an inner, in mm-hmm. irrational state mm-hmm. was something that was we were talking back and forth. And so those conversations informed my own multiple personalities. So right. I created four fictional personas that reflected aspects of myself. So there was Parabola Manabi, who was this biracial graphic designer that was really interested in order and systems and uh, was trying to reconcile his American and Ugandan lineages together. Yeah. Uh, there was Jan Buffman, right. yeah. who was a bodybuilding graphic designer really interested in mass and scale and design as brute force using uh, custom typefaces, including this typeface called Alpha Bravo that bulked up and got more mass. Um, There was uh, Dr. Montgomery Gabriel, who was this queer former botanist graphic designer. That's sort of where the biology kind of natural world stuff came in, living in the desert in Palm Springs and whose lover had died and was making this kind of mournful, reflective design. Interesting. And then, yeah, it's <laughs> so weird like, saying this out loud again, how like, much I know them. Uh, and then the last one was um, uh, Dr. Benjamin Jari, which was like a play on Alfred oh, Jari. Yeah. He's this uh, philosophical graphic designer, really interested in using philosophy as a tool to mill form mm-hmm. and sort of like um, making these elaborate, uh, intricate patterned and sort of computational pieces of form and each one of them made a publication and then they were combined into a, a meta publication okay. and that was poly mode so each one was looking at different editorial structures and rhythms um but in their own way and then it was framed with this like uh forward and conclusion that was really looking at this idea of how do you define a practice for yourself as a designer? Right. What are the different modes that we work in, the formal modes, the conceptual modes, the emotional modes, the procedural modes? Mm-hmm. There are like six different modalities. And um, for the most part, what I had been seeing in other designers was they would kind of use these modes consistently and mm-hmm. repeatedly in the same way to sort of make a cohesive body of work that either was formally held together, conceptually held together. And I was arguing, could you use a multimodal process depending on what you're working on in different ways? I I hadn't really thought about it this way until you started describing it like that. And I think it's interesting how you you created these characters and then you, these characters or these parts of, of, of yourself had these kind of different styles or different modes of work. And and there's this kind of, it sounds like there's this kind of rigid uh, split between them. And I, I, as you were talking, I was starting to wonder if you could take some of one character and actually mix it with another character to Mm -hmm. make, you know, which I guess is kind of the point is that all of these things are part of you and that these could also start to blend together, I guess. Right. Well, and I think the longer that I practice, the more they are starting to blend together. Okay. That was my next question is how this has started to manifest itself in your practice since grad school. So like a recent project that I'm just finishing is there's a book coming out from Princeton Architectural Press about W.E.B. Du Bois's oh, yeah. information graphics that yeah. he made at the turn of the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, they've been all over like the blogs, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. hyperallergenic, um, brain picking. Yeah, brain pickings um, is where I saw it, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were digitized by the Library of Congress, I think like a, like a year and a half ago. Okay. And they just were kind of like making the rounds on Twitter and mm-hmm. um, the blogosphere. And uh, these two... Du Bois experts at UMass Amherst, um, Britt Russell and Whitney Baptiste, uh, asked uh, a few people, including me, to contribute to this volume Mm. about the diagram. So Alden Morris, who's a foremost Du Bois scholar, wrote an essay that's more about his work as a sociologist and his school of sociology 
and uh, the events leading up to this exposition of these graphics. And then Mabel O. Wilson, who is an architecture uh, practitioner and uh, scholar who's written a book called Negro Buildings, oh, uh, all about the it's awesome. You got to okay. read it. All right. It's adding it to the list. About, yeah, it's all about I know, right? A never-ending list of things to read. Yeah. It's all about the the history of African Americans in museums and world's fairs. She wrote it um leading up to the um construction of the African American History Museum in DC and I think she was just really curious about like, oh, well, like where have people of color been in relationship to museums and yeah so she wrote something um and then i was asked to write an introduction to the plates and then also analyze all the plates and write captions for them and that was super amazing um to spend time with these images the the pieces which are like 22 inches by 28 inches they're these really big um posters that were made in ink and gouache and they were made by Du Bois and his students at Atlanta University where he taught sociology it was just they're so fragile so I could only really look at digital images of them but this kind of uh these series of diagrams was Du Bois and his team really arguing against this kind of bunk uh biology science that was saying that people of color were inferior and mm-hmm. uh, they were the same. Uh, and Du Bois worked on the exhibition uh, in collaboration with Booker T. Washington, okay. um, kind of a frenemy of his at the time. Uh, this lawyer, uh, Thomas J. Calloway, who was um, uh, had connections with the Library of Congress okay. and other parts of government, and they, they organized this exhibit on the American Negro and these charts were part of it. So for me, this project was like looking at my identity as a man of color and mm-hmm. what does that mean? This idea of dig- um, information visualization mm-hmm. coupled with um, this whole visual language that these untrained designers and uh, you know, they were also right. doing typography. It was right. like amazing. And it was happening. Like the forms look like things from the Bauhaus or they look yeah. like things from yeah. constructivism, but they were happening in 1900. And it's like, whoa, this whole, like now my understanding of design history is totally, my wig is flipped. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. like the, how is this, how yeah. do I not know about this? And I think that is one of the, the gifts of the graduate experience that I had was, you know, how to begin to find your own uh, orientation in the field of design for yourself through your own methods, your own approach, um, and to know that you you possibly could contribute and shape the discipline, even in a pretty small way, relatively. And it's interesting, though, because something else that I wanted to ask you about, you know, this idea of, of, of poly mode, and I don't... I, I hope I'm not stretching the metaphor too much, but it is the name of your studio. So it, it, I feel like, (laughs) I feel like it's okay to keep talking about it is that it's not just about kind of different modes of working as a designer, but is also working in different disciplines in a way, or it's, you know, this kind of idea of something that comes up on the, on the podcast a lot is um, this idea of the expanded practice. And it's not just, design but also includes writing and teaching and curating all the stuff we've been talking about um and and this book that that you're working on it sounds like um a lot of your role is as a a writer or as a historian you know maybe you could say and i'm kind of curious how you think about that not just being a designer but also being somebody who writes and teaches and works on these projects outside of kind of traditional graphic design. How do those things start to fit together for you? Or do you even see those as different types of practice anymore? I do think think that they're different. I okay. do think that me being a designer and a practicing designer affected my ability to do the writing mm. for this Du Bois project. Yeah. 
and I think I was asked to look at the design itself right? because of my expertise and understanding as a designer. And I used a lot of the skills that I use in design projects, like formal analysis and, right. Right. Um, you know, uh, researching how something is made and um, having an understanding of, about why something looks the way it does because I've made things myself mm-hmm. and have looked at other pieces of design i feel like uh the writing part was also incredibly humbling Mm. because it it's just time consuming in a way that uh graphic design isn't (laughs) as much for me just because it's it's not like my more natural modality of working and so uh and then you're also you know I'm working with like real historians. Right, right. People are trained in the discipline of history. Yeah. Like that has been, you know, a constant bane, burden, uh, discussion in design history is like, oh, all of our design historians are also usually designers because there's not that many exclusively trained design historians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's changing. Yeah. Uh, But it's been interesting that we felt like we needed to track our own history um, because kind of maybe at a certain point in time, no one else cared. Right. Um, But now that's also shifting as well. And for me, there are these kind of reciprocal things that happen with expanded practice where it it gives me a lot more respect for writers and writing and that whole process. And then at the same time, like that idea of like dealing with 63 pieces of graphic design that have, you know, complex text associated with them and introduction. How does my work also fit with the other writers in the publication? I was also asked my opinion. I didn't design the book, but was like, Oh, what do you think about the design Mm. of the book? So there's like a way of influencing the project uh, from the perspective of my experience as a graphic designer. And do you think, uh, do you think the inverse also I'm curious about the inverse of that also has working on this project or kind of working, you know, in this kind of expanded practice, has it changed how you think about graphic design or have the things that you've learned working, you know, as a writer or as a teacher or something come back and changed how you practice? Yeah, I think it, it also gives me a lot of uh, learning in terms of like how to initiate an idea and also how to create a refined perspective or a point of view on something from the past. Cause that that's, I think the gift of what historians do is that they reframe something from a different time into the lens of what's happening today. Yeah. And one of the things that was uh, in the introduction that Britton Whitney wrote uh, to boys in addition to his like prolific sociology, his helping to found the NAACP, his uh, involvement with a, a collective called the Niagara Group, um, you know, like yeah. sociology, Pan-Africanism. He also wrote novels and poetry. And among his writing was actually a piece of speculative fiction. Oh, I didn't know uh, this. Yeah, I didn't either until <laughs> I started working on this project um, where he imagines a future uh with this sort of fictional persona that's him oh interesting that's like a, a sociologist that's um in this kind of uh near future that uh involves like robots and uh sort of like oh that's uh, fascinating kind of technology in a unique way it's just like so it's like okay so okay how could I have predicted, yeah. you know, eight years ago that like working on a thesis about speculative fiction and like imagined futures and like non-science would actually lead to a project where like I'm finding out that this foremost black yeah. scholar and activist also wrote speculative fiction, Yeah, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. So, yeah, so I think that this, that to me, I see like, Parabola Manabi and I see like yeah. you know yeah. Ben Jari. I see 
fragments of myself start to come together and merge in a project like this. And those kinds of synchronicities seem to be happening a lot for me lately. I want to, I want to kind of change the subject completely because I want to talk a little bit about teaching. Um, and because that seems like it's a big part of what you do also. And you mentioned when you went to CalArts that you knew you were interested in teaching or that you liked teaching. Um, how does, how does teaching fit in to, to your work or kind of all of these other things that you're doing? Mm, it's definitely something that I spend like the most time maybe doing professionally. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and you know, I teach full time at Otis College of Art and Design. I work with undergraduates and graduate students there, mostly juniors and seniors. And then I also advise students in this okay. graduate program in Vermont. Right. And lately I've also been traveling a lot as a critic um, to other schools, especially graduate programs in graphic design. And that's been amazing. But kind of the core... I, I think some of it is because there's teachers on my dad's side of the family. Oh, okay. So like all of my dad's sisters uh, are teachers or yeah. retired teachers. And um, so it's kind of like in the blood. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason I love teaching is I love learning yeah. too. So yeah. I think as a teacher, I'm constantly evolving and and working on like my craft of what I know and how do you how do you parse things out so that people can understand and yeah. use what you know yeah um, and that is definitely something I feel like I'm honing especially right now something I've been thinking about a lot and I've asked I, I I'll admit this is a question that I've been asking everyone that I talk to on the podcast recently who are teachers because this is something that I've come to realize because I also went to grad school knowing that I wanted to teach and that I had an interest in teaching. And I've now been teaching a couple classes a semester for the last two years now. Um, And I've realized, uh, you know, especially thinking about this idea uh, of the expanded practice and wanting a career that could span design and writing and research and all of these things that the classroom is actually the place where all of those things come together the clearest uh and and become one and that in inside the four walls of the classroom is a space where i feel simultaneously uh teacher student designer writer critic researcher learner do you do you feel that way also that the 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 classroom or kind of the teaching practice is the place where you know going back to the beginning of our conversation where you had all of these kind of other interests do you find the classroom a place where those things come together for you yeah i do think it's a place of synthesis yeah that's a good uh, word. in the in, in the in the classroom and actually when you were talking about that there's like a line that i have in one of my teaching philosophies that's like part of my goal as an educator is to drape the space of the classroom in possibility. Oh, I like, like that. So it's kind of, at the beginning of my teaching career, I was much more aggressive and much more hands-on, like mm. maybe almost more design education as kind of a form of art direction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really, <laughs> like really being more prescriptive about like, my tastes or what I thought a student should do. And the longer that I teach, the more I'm interested in just like, how do you set up a framework where the student can hook in to define the part of what they're doing that really lights them up and gets them whirling on uh, these connections of things that seem disseparate. And I also, I never really thought about this until you were just talking about the classroom it made me think of the white cube oh, yeah. of the gallery of like how it's this thing that artists like project onto or activate or put into the space. And then sort of like thinking about what that is for design as well, which is like sort of yeah. any kind of um, uh, context, you know, design is a little bit more malleable, like our context could be 
the gallery or white cube, but it could also be a screen. It can also be I love uh, you know, a publication system. So it's like, oh, yeah. I wonder if we like, well, that's brilliant what you were saying. Like, could the classroom be a kind of expanded space? And like, how do you re-engage with it when you think about some of those parallels? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I had not... <laughs> I had not thought about it the way that you now just just described it, but I think you're exactly right because I've I, I I think I'm I'm like you a little bit where I've I I see teaching a bit as I see t- the the my teaching practice is very similar to my design practices and kind of kind of designing the space or designing the framework for students to figure things out on their own. Um, and, and even just, I, I've started saying when, when students will ask me, like, should I, do you think this needs to be bigger or do you think (laughs) I should change this color or they'll show me two options or something? It's like, should it, do you think this one is better or this one is better? And I've started just, you know, before I would, I would give my opinion and I've started just saying, I don't know. Um, Mm. and it's like, I, I don't know. You're the, you're the designer on this, not me. And seeing one their face and just kind of being surprised that I'm not giving them an answer, but then watching them work through it. Uh, I talked to Mitch Goldstein recently, mm-hmm. um, and we talked about teaching, and, and he had this great line about how he's not trying to make his students the next Mitch Goldstein. He's trying to make them more them. Uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we're talking about also. And I think being less prescriptive and just creating these spaces where students, um, you know, it's draped in possibility to use your, your words. Um, students can kind of find their own modes of working. Uh, and, and then us as teachers learn just as much uh, in that instead of us being prescriptive and just kind of, you know, outlining everything that needs to be done you know Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's I prefer that not every student yeah responds so well to that um yeah open-endedness um and I've been finding ways to balance that with structure I think there's also related to what Mitch was saying and I remember him saying that and also like tweeting about that Mm um there's also we even as much as we try to, there's a certain amount of pedagogical damage that I don't think any mm. teacher can totally surmount. Or if it is, we're like, that's our project as teachers. Right. Um, is sort of like, I think we either end up becoming teachers because we either have like amazing teachers or we have <laughs> terrible yeah. teachers or challenging teachers or all of the above and we're sort of trying to figure out, Oh, at least this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I take the parts of my education that were super impactful for me? Yeah. And then how do I adapt them for my own skills and my own way that I manifest in the world? And then how do I do that also for this time? Because I think, right. Um, there's so much rapid change happening right now in the world and so much rapid change happening in design. And it's like, I, I, we all have a little bit of whiplash, yeah. I think. Yeah. And, uh, I'm trying to contend with like, how, how much do I dig in and be a curmudgeon about certain things about graphic design, like typographic things or like right. formal things. Right. And then how much, um, do I realize that like I also need to loosen up and respond to the contemporary conditions of our practice? Yeah, that that actually leads really nicely into the final kind of series of questions that I had. These are questions that I, I kind of ask everybody. Um, and this first one, we've talked about it a, a little bit, um, but I, I'm curious kind of what are the are the issues or the topics either within the design profession at large or even within individual practice that designers should be talking about or debating or wrestling with or writing about? What are the kind of issues or subjects right now that that uh, that you think are important? 
Mm, wow. Um, there's been a number of things that I've been thinking about. One of the things is about the just the way in which criticism happens now, or mm. everything is so much more public. Yeah. Yeah. In the sense of uh, design itself, how it's presented, and so much of like our history as a design practice has been like this thing that's sort of in the shadows, sort of, and yeah. Yeah. then kind of shows up in the world. Um, and I think our current culture of like, mm. you know, and this sort of social, uh, socially digitally connected world can make having a critical grit or point of view be challenging in certain ways. Cause oh, it's interesting. Yeah. We're like kind of skipping the surface in yeah. certain ways. Like, um, yeah, like, don't like, like, don't like, um, <laughs> right. smiley right. face. Um, uh, and I think that's pretty interesting. And then it sort of creates this other shadow, which is like the bottom half of the web, which is like trolling yeah. and yeah. kind of like, it's either I love it or it's terrible. Yeah. Um, and so like, I think that just sort of affects, affects the discourse itself. Yeah. I also, we talked about this a little bit and you, you've mentioned it a couple of times and I, I want to just spend a little bit of time talking a little more, but about kind of um, rethinking design history and specifically mm. uh, decolonizing it a bit. Mm. Um, and that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I realize, um, uh you know, it's something that comes up on the podcast a lot. And I know that I am a, a straight white male and, you know, might be kind of part of the problem of that. But I'm curious about <laughs> in your work, how you're thinking about that. Um, and, you know, we talked about it with design schools and then even with the Du Bois talking about how that was changing, how you thought about it. Um, are you are you is that kind of playing a role in the kind of work that you're doing or how are you thinking about how that kind of works both in your practice, but could also um you know, help the, the profession. Mm -hmm. It's definitely something I'm thinking a lot about. And as someone who has like multiple statuses as other, you know, like queer of color, but then also, uh, I don't, I was not brought up sort of in the African American tradition. I was mm -hmm. brought up with an African and a Midwestern <laughs> Minnesota tradition. Yeah. Um, that, uh, you know, and being a queer man, I feel like the only way that makes sense for me now is using, you know, the framework of intersectionality, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that's, it's, if you are going to attempt to decolonize design education, design history, you have to look at it through a series of overlapping slices. It's yeah. not, yeah. um, Otherwise, you can kind of get stuck in tokenism or, right. um, you know, another flat reading. And that's something I've been trying to contend with myself. And there's like a lot of people who know a lot more than me about even the notion of decolonizing. And um, as, as someone who also has a limited, my own limited knowledge and understanding of indigenous cultures and peoples, mm -hmm that that's like a whole nother discourse that um, like I am myself being and learning about. But I do know that my own very life is a product of colonization, you know, yeah. um, a, a mother that fled, you know, uh, a post British empire ruler, Idi Amin, that was just as destructive and uh, terrifying and, and horrible uh, as, as sort of the colonizer. Mm hmm. Um, and, and then sort of, you know, dealing with like, you know, post reconstruction, post civil yeah, war, yeah, yeah. you know, post civil rights, uh, of America. Um, but I do think that idea of, uh, intersectionality is a really good place to start. And I also feel like a very nodal, um, way of looking at 
design history with this kind of flattened hierarchy. And for me, Du Bois was this amazing entry point, yeah, which yeah. I didn't even know was in my toolkit until the summer. Uh, and I'm I'm really interested in more things like that. I have a colleague at VCFA. Well, I have a couple of colleagues at VCFA that are doing really interesting things with design history. It's interesting though because I I asked you about. I was curious because we we talked about design history a couple times throughout the the conversation. You're starting talking about design schools, and then it came up again with with the boys and how how it kind of changed how you were thinking about design history. Um, and I kind of asked thinking, I've been realizing a lot, especially as a teacher now, how much of my own design education was was kind of rooted in this very modernist way that there was good design and bad design, right design and wrong design. And not until years later, realizing that that was just a way of working that was created by a very specific group of people at a very specific time. And this is something that Lorraine Wilde has, has written a lot about, about too. And so I was kind of curious about that. And, and you kind of then even expanded that to talk about intersectionality, not just uh, in regards to race or gender, but also ways of working and that design history is this thing that could be this kind of fluid history that moves between disciplines and um, people and countries uh, in, in a, a very interesting way. So anyway, all of that to say, I thought that was a very interesting and thoughtful answer to that question. Thank you. I mean, I think that's true, like that maybe that's what's so powerful and grounding about this, the material culture and the process part of design is that it is something that is informed and touches all disciplines. Like right. it shapes our built environment. Like in a way it's how history is encoded in design itself, right. 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 whether you do it consciously or not. And I think that's the whole idea of like the next generation of design history and design scholarship and criticism yeah. is to have a more conscious right. interpretation experience of the lineage of design and then what's going to come forward after that. And it's really hard to do that when we live in a life cycle, life stream that's super accelerated yeah. by communication, by technology. And it is hard to, um, to craft moments for yourself to really engage with something that feels like a new perspective right, yeah. without like feeling like, and even I, I feel like my interview was guilty of this like ping ponging across so many different reference points oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and places. And I, I think that's like one of the things that I'm like really excited about like being more settled in Los Angeles <laughs> yeah. is like um, it can be kind of exhausting to have too many nodes in your diagram and kind of try right. to make sense of something, you know? So that's the, maybe also even the downside of an intersectional approach is like, yeah, Ooh, it's very ungrounding in certain ways. Cause it's like, it depends, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a great way to maybe kind of, uh, wrap this up, wrap this conversation up. My last question that I ask every guest, and you've, you've mentioned a couple people in a couple books throughout, but I'm curious, are there books or authors or, or writers who have really influenced the way you think about all of these things that, that we've been talking about, whether it's history or expanded mm -hmm. practice or design or teaching um, or outside of those completely that have just kind of influenced your own thinking and your own work? Oh, man, <laughs> I mean, like, wow, that's like hard. I don't know why that's really challenging for me because it's like anyone I ever studied with, anyone yeah, I yeah. ever read. You know what? Actually, um, to be honest, I feel like it's always the really tricky philosophy. Mm that always seems to work for me, like oh, in terms of inspiring, like my criticism or perspective on the world, because I, I think in some ways I was drawn to graphic design because the clarity and the rationality and the idea of communicating was so attractive to me because I think yeah. a lot of the times I feel like 
I don't understand other people. I, I actually don't know how to communicate. I feel wildly inarticulate verbally and visually at times, which is strange because somehow I still have jobs. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm still working. Yeah. Um, so there, I must be doing something right. But, um, you know, like it's like Deleuze and Guattari, mm, a thousand autos, mm-hmm. you know, um, that actually Emmett Byrne turned me on to. And like this idea of like a rhizomatic experience and, yeah. uh, you know, flattened hierarchy and these like, like yeah, deep texts yeah. really hard to digest. Like, uh, Roland Barr's A Lover's Discourse oh, yeah. was a text that I was introduced to. And that, that idea of a fragmentary way of describing something as broad and complex as love, mm-hmm. like through these multiple narratives of a lover was really powerful. Julia Kristeva's The Powers of Horror is something that oh, I read yeah. last year. Um, I read related that too. To, you know, like yeah. uh, abjectness yeah. and like a certain abject typography that we're also experiencing. So mm-hmm. I think that that the that would be really interesting uh, an interesting space I think to go into and we have some people who have delved in it but like design philosophy, you know, yeah. like what would that look like um you know, I guess Victor Papanek has sort of played in that well or yeah. uh Otto Eicher is mm-hmm. also someone that's done that, but I think that <laughs> I'm kind of interested in those kind of like um, great yeah. areas, the sort of the black holes of thought um, yeah. that are pretty interesting and kind of like maybe not directly yeah. show a designer like how to current type, right? But um, sort of help us look at the larger conditions of design and life. Those are the kinds of things that I'm interested in reading. I would like to see more of and. In that, I feel like you kind of brought this the conversation full circle. So thank you so much for this conversation. <laughs> this was so interesting to me. I, I love the way you think about these things and, and glad we got to do this. So thanks for yeah. uh, being on the show. You're welcome. It was an honor to be on the show. It's like so cool to like all the different minds and thinkers that you have assembled. Like this is amazing. This episode was recorded on March 20th, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and SoundCloud, and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>